It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz, including artist profiles, the next generation, educators, festivals, producers, venues, photographers, media, and a whole lot more. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we'll be speaking with an acclaimed trombonist, a composer, producer, educator, and an all-around great guy. His name is Delphio Marsalis. Delphio, thanks for joining us today. Yes, sir. Delighted to be here. It's a pleasure. So now you're in uh, New Orleans. Uh, is that where you are at the moment and uh, residing? Yes. I'm uptown. I've been here. Uh, graduated from the Berkeley College of Music a couple of years ago and I moved back home and I've been here ever since. So just a couple of years ago, of course, we know that. Uh, now, you have uh, in some of your uh, bio information that uh, you're a record producer, an educator, a composer, obviously a, a performer. What role do you really aspire to? Or is there one specific thing that if you were given a choice and you can only do one thing, what would that be? Well, at this point in my life, I would be a composer uh, if I just had the one option. You know, performance is great, and I, I love it. And there is a thrill that you receive when you're playing in front of an audience and you're able to bring a certain kind of, of emotion and excitement and joy to, to people. So that's very unique. But I, I would say that with the composition, you have an opportunity to create works that will last. You know, they'll, they'll be around after me, and hopefully other individuals would have an opportunity to, to perform them. But I would say that throughout my, my career or my lifetime that, each of those, those different skills have been very important to me. So, for example, the production is very important, uh, even when it comes to creating albums, or I do work with kids in musical theater, so the production skills are very helpful in that realm. Performance is also important because it's different when you're doing things in real time. It's like we talk about perhaps great musicians and great composers. There's no question about Beethoven and Mozart, their greatness, because they left behind the music. And we can perform it and we say, wow, this is great music. But when you hear Charlie Parker play, there's no way to really ascertain the impact that he had on the people who saw and experienced him live. He just brought a certain element that the written note cannot recreate. You know, I would say all, everything is important for different reasons. Well, and, and that's a, an excellent point that you bring up, especially uh, for you as a composer. One of the things about jazz, uh, as uh, you well know, is that improvisation and a little creativity in delivering those notes rather than just focusing on the notes is you got to bring the soul. You need to bring the heart into this music and emote, if you will. Otherwise, it just isn't the same. Oh, without question. Somehow, I, I think it's the, the late 50s and the early 60s. I kind of blame it on, on Miles Davis and, and Bill Evans. The idea that the music was always celebratory, and it always had a certain excitement to it, jazz I'm talking about. You know, Miles, unfortunately, he lost his voice at some point in the 50s, which caused him to be more introverted than he actually was in terms of his public persona. Then he hires Bill Evans, man, and, and Bill Evans is like the scientist in the lab. And he just wants to work out what he's doing. So he didn't have a lot of, of charisma from an audience standpoint of view. And many of the musicians who followed, I, I would say, were heavily influenced by 
you know, by these two individuals. Whereas we would have individuals like Cannonball Adderley and Louis Armstrong and Charlie Parker and Sidney Bechet and Jelly Roll Martin. We'd have, you know, guys that really had a certain excitement. All of a sudden, we, we tended to become more introverted with our music. And to a lesser extent, you know, even John Coltrane. So now you have John Coltrane, and he's really astute and he's in the practice room. And what I would say is that we need all those different elements. But jazz throughout the ages, we were able to survive with, you know, Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway and just a different type of personality. So I think that's what we finding to, we're finding today is very important, bringing back that type of, of personality to the music. Well, personality really is key to a lot of good music, especially... As a listener, you want that. You want to be able to have some sort of a touch moment or a connection to the musician uh, as it's being played and uh, performed. I I was watching a virtual uh, broadcast uh, of uh, some students who were doing a performance uh, the other night, and they had their eyes laser glued into the notes rather than performing it. It it was more of focusing on the notes rather than just let yourself go. And look, that that is a skill in and of itself. Sometimes you see the the Basie Orchestra or the Ellington Orchestra and they're reading the, you know, they're reading the music. And so from that standpoint, when you're reading, you have to focus. It was part of real life. Now, I think the, the bigger issue for the students is that what happens to them in everyday life, they're not able to bring that to the musical performance as much. So like, like you said, when they're looking at the music, it's all about what is on this page. Somehow the Basie Orchestra, and I, I guess that's because a lot of the older bands played for dances. Although they're reading the music, they're able to, to, to feel the vibe of the people and the dancing. And you know you know that you have, your music has to have a certain excitement and it has to have a certain kind of groove or the people aren't gonna dance. That's one of the things when I when I talk to students or if I go to the schools, I try to get them to see, you know, all jazz is dance music. And if what you're playing isn't going to inspire people to dance, you perhaps should reconsider the approach. Well, what about for you as a composer? If you wrote a, a beautiful piece and you handed it over to the musicians and they started going at it, and then all of a sudden, it's like, you missed that note. Or would it bother you if they took liberties and shifting away from the heart of the, the note or the charts in front of them? Well, it depends on what the chart is and what the song is. So, for example, I have a, a song on the new CD. It's entitled The Raid on the Mingus House Party. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to recreate is a lot of the chaos that we have in society today. So there's written notes But in addition to the written notes, there are improvised passages. So at at one point in the song, there's 10 different things going on at once. If the individuals who are playing the written music decide that they're not going to play that, so I would say that the entire song represents structured chaos, then you have the, the possibility that it becomes chaos without the structure. Now, having said that, in a live performance, I'm not going to mind so much. It kind of depends on who's doing it and what what the outcome is. I'm a big fan of not only Arnett Coleman, but of some of the free music from the 60s. It's not my choice to do that all the time, but to have that, I I think is a great thing. Because actually what we're witnessing now with the the mass amount of protests and kind of the civil unrest in the city, in the country, I guess around the world, it's very similar to what was going on in the 60s. So having said that, Depends on the situation. I may or may not mind. I would 
as a composer, if it were me, it would be like, wow, I didn't hear that, but you're hearing that in your head and, and putting that out, and it sounds incredible. Uh, so uh, who knows? I mean, it, it's like music is always a collaboration to begin with. And speaking of uh, collaboration, you obviously come from a rather uh, well-known household. The Marsalis uh, household is renowned uh, throughout the world. How much uh, peer pressure was there within the context of that house? You had your father, Ellis, uh, who was an incredible uh, pianist plus an educator. And by the way, uh, I am so saddened by uh, his loss for all of you. Uh, we've lost... Uh, a great voice in the world of jazz. So uh, our uh, condolences on that regard. Right. Well, you know, for me, it wasn't so much kind of the peer pressure uh, or the family pressure, like, say, for example, the Jacksons. And I think many people kind of got the feeling that we were like the Jacksons of jazz. Like my dad was like, you know, practice or you're going to get in the closet. <laughs> when you're in the closet, you got to practice. So, But uh, it was a situation where uh, Bradford and Winton, they grew up more in the late 60s, early 70s, and they were out playing. They were going to my father's gigs and whatnot, and it was a little different. So then my brother Ellis and I were born, you know, four or five years after them, and situation had shifted. So my dad's not playing performances the same amount. Now he's teaching in school. So Brandon and Winton were playing instruments from a young age. And then fifth or sixth grade, I decided, okay, you know what, I guess I'll play an instrument. And while for me, Branford was playing saxophone, Wynton was playing trumpet, my dad was playing uh, piano, and I first tried the bass and I didn't like it, hurt my fingers. Trombone was like the logical choice. You know, as we grew up now that we're adults, I realized that, you know, the trombone kind of chose me because the instruments really work well for our personalities. Each instrument kind of has its own personality. Trumpet, of course, is the lead in the band. And Wynton is perfect for that because you have to have a certain kind of a almost tunnel vision at times. The great trumpet players, they're just doing what they do. And everybody else has to work it out according to what the trumpet player does. Branford playing saxophone, perfect because of his personality. You know, he can fit in any situation. If he's on a Tonight Show, if he's staying on a Grateful Dead, if he's playing classical, like he just has such great sensibility. He can adjust. So whatever Wynton's doing, Branford knows how to make it sound better than what it is. Not to, you know, not in a funny kind of way I'm saying. When Winton's playing sounds good, then Bradford comes in and he makes it better. Now the trombone's job, of course, is if the trumpet and the saxophone are disagreeing, then I have to say, hey, bro, be cool, everything is all right. And if they're getting along too much, then I got to try to maybe tailgate some more and shake it up and say, hold up, now we don't want to be that friendly. So Overall, I would say that in the family, the musical, the instruments that we chose were perfect for our personalities, you know, for, for those reasons. You know, trombone players are always cool. There's a reason why the trombone section is in the middle of the band in the jazz orchestra, to keep the trumpets away from the saxophones. Trumpets are mad because they're in the back, <laughs> and the saxophones are mad because they can't play loud like the trumpets. The trombones are in the middle saying, come on, y'all, it's going to be all right, you know. So that's why you, you, you just check it out. You meet trombone players and their personality, by and large, they're just cool about it. They say, okay, yeah, we can make this work. Whereas a lot of times you'll find that the trumpet players will be more high-strung and the saxophonist too. So you're keeping law and order then as the uh, trombonist. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I'm a middle child, so it works out. 
See, you know, I can see it from from kind of both of the angles of the younger and the older brother. So I, I'm glad you mentioned that the choice of the uh, instrument was more a reflection of personality rather than everybody in the family saying, hmm, you know what we're missing? We're missing a trombone. Which one of you wants to do that? <laughs> I think at that point they would say we're missing a bass. <laughs> and uh, you had no sisters, so you didn't have a vocalist. You know, it just kind of was how it worked out. And And the funny part of that is, People talk about my father, but it was my mother who had all of the musical talent on her side of the family. Her uncle, Wellman Bro, her great uncle, Wellman Bro, was Duke Ellington's first bassist. She had a, a, another uncle named Alphonse Piku, and he was a phenomenal clarinetist that played, uh, high society was his big thing that he could play. Uh, whereas on my father's side, there was no music before him. And his father was an entrepreneur and a hotelier. Hotelier? Hotel? However you say that. Either way. Depends on uh, <laughs> what city street you live on. Oh, you say how you say it depends? <laughs> Correct. No, it's, yes. Uh, having uh, been in the hotel business, uh, I've heard it uh, even from the hotel professionals. Hotelier or hotelier. Uh, <laughs> right. okay. You say tomato, I'll say hotelier. So what was it like uh, with your mom? Did you guys drive her crazy? A house full of men? Well, you know, it was funny. I think that was kind of my mom's just punishment for being one of the early feminists. Because she was straight up feminist and she never had, only her mother and her family, there were never any girls. She only had brothers and she only had sons. So <laughs> I think it kind of, it was just kind of what was meant to happen. You know, she was very important to us because it was an old school type of family where the father went to work, you know, he brought home the bacon, as they say, and the mother did everything else. So she was responsible by and large for the discipline and for, you know, the clothing and the food and making sure that we were during our homework. So, you know, very important. And we, we're really more like her in a lot of ways than my dad. Uh, you know, being here, especially in the Deep South, you know, my dad's really laid back. He's kind of the, the, the typical Southern man, you would say. Just True. not really about a lot of fuss. And my mother's one of those almost typical Southern women that just, like, firecracker. She won't take any stuff at all. So... The fact that we were around her a lot, I think, was a big influence on us. Well, I think that uh, lends itself to uh, the development of all of you uh, and, and where you are today, uh, not only as musicians, but just as uh, genuinely wonderful people that have a concern for your fellow human being. And I, I think that's reflected in the personality uh, and just the general makeup of all of you in, in your family from what I can see as an outsider. It's a long tradition of that in, in the South and especially here in New Orleans. You know, I mentioned in my, a, a number of my liner notes, but probably for sure in The Last Southern Gentleman about the influence of the Africans and African culture on America and the idea of community and the idea of sharing. I mean, it was really strong because you got to figure here in the South, especially, you know, we've got that reputation for uh, the Southern gentleman. That's a straight up what we would say an African construct. The idea of speaking, hello, everybody. 
you know, it's just it's just a great thing. And the, the great thing about New Orleans is everybody, this is the true melting pot. New Orleans is truly what America aspired to be and should be because everybody comes together and gets along. And even though we don't always agree, we figure out a way to work it out. And that's the best you can do. Well, you know, when you're in New Orleans, uh, you experience that. Uh, everybody's friendly. It, it's just a wonderful place to be. There, there's an atmosphere. There's an environment that says, you know what? Doesn't matter who you are, what you are, you belong here, and we're glad you're here. Yeah, and that's indicative in the, the music and in the culture and the food. And that's, those are the elements that we're really trying to make sure we keep that as an important an integral part of the musical tradition in America, the American musical tradition. And it's nice to experience that, uh, especially uh, being, uh, I, I guess it would be considered the deep South, if you will. You know, look, jazz is a, a survival music. And I say that's because it came from New Orleans and New Orleans is a survival city and the folks know how to survive. Speaking of surviving, uh, I understand you might've even had a brush with uh, this COVID-19 thing. Yes, I'm going to try to get the official confirmation. The test never came back in, which is, of course, what I would suspect being in the South. You know, we're not very, very progressive down here, so we kind of accept, accept that. Yeah, it was, it was tough. It was probably about a three-week illness, and, and it was serious. And I know that there are a lot of folks who, who want to open the, the cities back. we got to open America back up, and we have to do this. But having been down with that, with, with the 19 it's not something that you want to mess around with. No, and I, I think a lot of people uh, maybe don't quite understand or underplay it, if you will, uh, the seriousness of it. It's uh, it's a pretty nasty thing. Oh, yeah. It's it's something that had I known, I mean, I, I still don't know that I'm 100% recovered or that I will. It's just one of those things that, you know, we're trying to say, well, it's like a flu. Man, it's, it's not at all like a flu. It's something that you just, you don't want to come in contact with. Now, that said, of course, you might... I think I had one of the more serious strains. I think I had a strong strain. Now, of course, you could brush up on a lighter strain and maybe, it, you know, you're a little ill for a week or so and everything's okay. But if you get the real 19, man, it's just something that you just want to avoid. What's the feeling like in New Orleans right now, uh, especially that town is so focused on music and without having that live performance all the time, it's got to be an eerie sort of uh, experience or am I not categorizing that correctly? No, I don't think it's eerie at all because what you have to understand is musicians, as my dad once put it, musicians don't have real jobs. So being independent contractors, we're used to going two weeks a month without any work. Now, instead of it being two weeks or a month, it's three months to a year. So I think that the, the musicians have the proper mindset here. In other words, the musicians that I've talked to are more optimistic than pessimistic. And it's just one of the things where we say, okay, we just have to wait it out. We have to see what happens. So I think we're very optimistic down here about getting over this particular situation and we're ready to get back to it. Well, that's really refreshing to hear, and it's uh, 
I think, uh, something that gives us uh, more of an optimistic uh, outlook uh, as to where this uh, might eventually all go to begin with. In the meantime, I wanted to uh, touch on something, and that is uh, the fact that uh, you've uh, long been involved as uh, an educator, and as a result of uh, that connection for yourself and uh, inspiring young New Orleans uh, kids, through art education, you started the Uptown Music Theater. Tell us a little bit about that. The shorter version of a very long story is I composed music a number of years ago for the Fillmore Arts School in uh, Washington, D.C. It's a program called Meet the Composer. And from that, the Dallas Opera commissioned me to work with Dallas area schools. And I started working on a children's opera. Eventually didn't finish it and here in New Orleans, I turned it into a musical uh, entitled Luther. And the kids that I worked with that year, they would call me every year after that, Mr. Delphia, when are you gonna start your own program? And I was like, yeah, I don't know about kids musical theater, yeah, I don't know. So three years later, finally the kid called me, Mr. Delphia, I said, okay, look, this summer we're gonna start the program. So it was as simple as that. And June came around and we put out the notices and I wrote a musical entitled Kids Town, where the kids, they run away and form their own town. And of course, they almost burn it down and the parents have to come to the rescue. So unlike Disney and all of my plays, the kids never know what's going on. It's always the parents that have the upper hand. At any rate, all that said, uh, and here I am 20 years later, and I've written about 16 musicals. And I've worked in a number of schools. And I have the, the Great American Legacy series where I, I wrote about you know, Harriet Tubman and Duke Ellington and uh, Althea Gibson, and we have one on the Harlem Renaissance. So for me, the idea is very similar to not only my parents and how they raised us, but also my high school training, which was that you want to have as much exposure to different ideas and different information as possible. Well, and it's good to see that uh, what you've done is you've opened up a whole new world to kids, not only the world of Broadway, but just musical theater, uh, expression of uh, emotion, expression of uh, what your feelings might be. It's okay to do what you feel moves you, if you will. And I, I think that that's, that's important for kids, especially watching people dance, sing, or act. Uh, we watched a video uh, of a uh, snippet of the... Uh, the Lion King that uh, you were involved with uh, at one point or the uh, the music theater had put on. And my wife was watching it with me. And when the video opens, they did this uh, incredible uh, number and she started crying. I mean, it affected her in a way that emotionally she saw how these kids were just expressing themselves and, and doing it through an artistic approach of uh, music and dance. And the, the kids have influenced me a, a great amount. You know, my, my relationship with them is I'm, I'm the disciplinarian, I'm the closer. I come in for very specific reason, which is to prepare them for competition and for performance. So we have the vocal teachers and the, the director and the acting coaches, and they really do what I consider the, the hard work. They do really the grunt work. And by the time I come in, it's just kind of to polish it up. But it's important for these kids, even though they're not used to the younger generation, the same type of discipline. I guess I would say 
the same type of disciplinary measures by instructors. You know, when I was coming up, it wasn't a big thing for a teacher to pull out a ruler on you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. You know, and it's like, and I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of that. I mean, I'm a fan of the old school, which is when you're a child, you have to respect the adult. And once you become an adult, it, you know, there's a cycle. I'm a fan of that philosophy. So the kids, sometimes it's difficult for them to adjust. And I think that what I uh, impose on them is actually a little bit unreasonable to some extent. But one of the greatest experiences we had, we went to the, the big competition in Atlanta, and that in itself is a big thing, but we agreed for the kids to perform with Cynthia Arrivo, who's a great actor and Broadway performer. So they had to learn the song on the spot, but they also had to study for their exams. There's a point at which we're rehearsing at maybe 11 o'clock midnight we're rehearsing for the performance the next day. Three or four of the kids are asleep on the table. And at that point, I, you know, I, I gave them a lot of slack. One girl was, was so focused, she's just standing there crying. And I'm like, I could tell that she was so fatigued, but she had so much commitment to what we were trying to do that I just told her, go, go, go up, go to sleep. Just leave, <laughs> leave. But that's inspiring to see that kids can, you know, have that level of, of passion and commitment to what they're doing. And uh, one trip, they said that when they got to the airport, the kids had been studying so much that there was a, a picture they took of all the kids just sleeping. So at any rate, just saying that to say, and I, I always tell these, these kids, you know, it happens to be they're all black kids, all African-Americans. And I tell them, look, your, your ancestors paid a lot of dues. They paid a lot of dues for a long time for you to be here in the air conditioning doing what we're doing. So. The point is just never take that for granted. And I think that they understand it. Sorry for the long-winded answer. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but a perfect uh, and poignant answer at that because it, it is something that you have to keep in mind what your heritage is and, and where you're going and, and, and how you interact uh, and how you uh, relate to other people in life. Uh, it, it's, it's very important. It, it, there's not only the musical message, but there's a life message here. Right, and I feel that that's our responsibility is to prepare the youth. And there were many educators in New Orleans, if it's Kid Jordan or uh, Johnny Fernandez or Roger Dickerson or Yvonne Bush. I mean, there's such a long list of individuals who sacrificed their time and had a commitment to uh, assisting children. Danny Barker taught the entire generation how to play traditional New Orleans music, and that would have been in the 70s. He by himself just decided, you know what, it's important for these youngsters to learn the music the way it's supposed to be played or the way it's supposed to sound. So at any rate, it's a long history of that type of mentorship here in New Orleans, and we're, just, we're happy to, to follow in that stead and hoping that these kids, as they, they grow up, that they will also reach back into the community and, uh, and provide assistance. They've obviously done it very well because they've won like six national awards uh, for their work. <laughs> Seven out of nine. Seven. And it would have been eight had they not agreed to sing with Miss Arriva. I think, it, you know, that would have been double dipping. So. Well, there you, go. <laughs> you know, that's, that's important. But and, and what I'm telling them now, it's interesting, this whole movement that we have now with the, the George Floyd uh, event and what's going on all around the world with the protests. But 
you know, two months ago, I started the kids reading Paul Lawrence Dunbar and introducing them to W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, Booker T. Washington. And at that point, I was telling them it's important for you to know the writings of these individuals as much as it's important for you to know the fiddle on the roof and Lion King and, you know, all the different uh, Disney shows that, that they were able to perform. And I'm just telling them that it's very important to know what these writings meant to Americans and to African-Americans. So it, it, it's funny now, now the parents, you know, I introduced it and the kids were like, oh, what is this black history class all of a sudden? And I was saying to them, no, it's, I think that these are things that are important to you. And sure enough, now it's the, the message is, is more strong just in that short period of time. I think there's more awareness of, wow, maybe we should understand how individuals through the ages have dealt with civil unrest. Right now, that's probably uh, and a very, very important thing for all of us. And I, I think uh, that uh, the, the tragedy of this is just uh, uh, abhorrent. Uh, it, it's unacceptable. And you can see where I think maybe this is an awakening for the rest of this country to finally get ourselves, and I'm not sure if I could use this term or not, uh, get our shit together. And <laughs> You know, the funny part, if you read the writings of Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's, his vibe in general was that you cannot allow something to happen that you know is not correct because it could easily turn on you. So he was saying, for example, if your belief is that due to uh, someone having a darker complexion than you, that you have the right to enslave them, then you could be enslaved by a person who you have a darker complexion with. But the point there as it relates to politics today is when Donald Trump decided to go after Barack Obama the way that he did in the, the Republican Party and a lot of people got behind it because they were like, yeah, we think this is funny. They set the tables for that to be turned on them. That's why when he ran for president, you know, there was no Republican that could touch him because he had set the table and everybody joined in. He set the table for kind of that that type of delivery. And once he saw that, that it, you know, in other words, the Republicans, once he was against Obama, they thought, oh, this is funny. Yeah, this is great. We love this guy. But then all of a sudden you watch the Republicans and they just dropped out one by one by one. Now we're at a point where I think the people in the country are just tired. They're just tired of it. You know, uh, we're going to see what happens in, in November. But sometimes you need this. Sometimes you need this type of civil unrest for people to wake up. Well, right now, it, it's important, too, that I, I think uh, we see the good in all of life and what it has to offer. We need to get past this uh, separation, if you will, and, and be more inclusive, just like you are uh, in jazz music uh, or in any music, for that matter. You need to all come together for it to work. If you've got a rebel in, in the crowd and you don't have a trombone guy to keep you in line... Uh, and use that as a, a figure of speech, if you will. Uh, right, I know what you're saying. Maybe you should just take the uh, trombone out one afternoon and uh, start playing, and maybe that'll say, okay, people, let's uh, let's kind of draw this back to center here for a moment, and everyone rethink this and then move on. I, I'm not at all opposed. Well, you know, music has been, been central. I don't believe that music changes things the way that policy and other elements will change. But music certainly has a great impact on people from an emotional and a moral standpoint of view. And uh, we're gonna do what we can 
And the great thing about jazz is jazz generally becomes what it needs to be and what the country needs it to be. And following the the civil rights movement, following the 60s, and the country kind of lost its way because it, it, it was going in a certain direction. And then, of course, Kennedy was assassinated. Martin Luther King was assassinated. There was a lot of assassinations. The, the 70s, man, the country kind of lost. We didn't really have a real direct plan the way that we had a plan in the 60s. And that's kind of, to me, how jazz was. It kind of, it, it kind of meandered around for a little while. And then you had the resurgence in the 80s, which was important the way that it happened. And it was, okay, we're going to treat this with a certain level of seriousness and in regard. Now we're at a point where the music really needs to bring people together and provide joy. The most difficult part of the pandemic in the past couple of months is it's hard to really find joy. It's just, it's, we're looking for an opportunity to, to rejoice and to celebrate and to, to do something and to be human. And uh, the music, I'm, I'm certain, once we have that opportunity, it, it will uplift the people again. Do you think that that's uh, the role or the responsibility of music now uh, is to uh, wake people up? Uh, because I've done a, a couple of uh, recent episodes where I'm seeing a trend or uh, at least a, a pattern of people talking about how it's okay to have music that has protest in it that uh, draws people to the attention of the inequalities of life uh, and to say enough is enough. We need to uh, come together as people and enjoy and stop what we're doing now and move into a better place. Well, protest in music and any art, I think is always good. I don't believe that's what the country necessarily needs now. There is enough of an awakening and a reality of protest that we could provide commentary, but it's more important that we uplift people and provide celebration. So for example, if you listen at Oscar Brown Jr., some of his works in the 60s or Abby Lincoln or The Last Poets, man, they, deal, they dealt with serious, what you would consider protest. I mean, not only them, you know, Gil Scott Heron, hmm. a number of individuals, even uh, to a different extent, uh, Charles Mingus. So we've always had the artists that provided the commentary about the protest. And I think it's important if we have that now, even more importantly, people need to celebrate. They need to know that everything is going to be all right. That's why we really needed Louis Armstrong. You know, here's the great thing about Louis Armstrong. Two things is Louis Armstrong would play anything. He'd play any music, any song, and he'd turn it into gold because he just had that disposition and he had something in his personality. But Louis Armstrong allowed the avant-garde players to have a place. He allowed Arnett Coleman to have a place. He allowed the bebop guys to find their voice. And I say that because he was like the grandpa that let you know that everything was going to be all right. And that allowed self-expression for the youngsters. And that's kind of in a sense where jazz is to the younger musical forms. Jazz has to just represent, man, it's going to be cool. And when you hear Louis Armstrong, whether you like his sound or not, it's undeniable that sound is one of celebration and it brings people together. Wow. Music does that. Uh, and uh, it, it's great. Uh, and I, I think that's been the pattern of a lot of uh, performers such as yourself and other uh, musicians who have made it your goal to find celebratory music, 
find an element in that music that gets people dancing, that gets people thinking, uh, remembering, uh, reminiscing about the good old days. And uh, that's what music does for a lot of us. You know, you think about an old girlfriend or you think an old boyfriend. Uh, and there are little things like this that grab you and it takes you in a direction that is a good thing, not a bad thing. Right. And the one thing that I've learned the most, so my music has changed over the course of 20 years. It really changed over the past decade. And that was when I started to perform with more New Orleans musicians. And the big change there was the idea of playing the music specifically for the entertainment of my audience. And that is a, a New Orleans construct. That goes back to the early days of jazz. And you know, there's, there's two occasions that I would, I would name. One is, I'll just name the most important one. We played a concert uh, last year. And after the performance, a gentleman came up to me and he said, you know, Mr. Marcellus, I just want to let you know we really enjoyed the show. But uh, he said, it's kind of bittersweet. I had to return to your show because last year I was here in New Orleans with my son-in-law and we really had a great time. And he was deployed to Afghanistan and he didn't make it back. Hmm. And I remember how great of a night it was then. And I wanted to come and kind of relive that in his memory. And I thanked him and I said, you know, man, come back anytime. But to me, that is the importance of what we do. The importance of what we do is that people have a connection with us and they find joy and they want to, to relive that. So, you know, for me, that was a, a, one of the more touching moments. And it made me realize what I always try to tell the guys in my band, we never know who we're going to impact. We never know. So when we, and that's the other thing, Louis Armstrong, man, never had a bad day. There's not a single video or recording where Louis Armstrong is not at the top of his game. Unbelievable to have that level of consistency. You know, he had the consistency of, of Bach or something, and Bach had the advantage if he could just write it down. Like, we don't know <laughs> in live performance. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but Louis Armstrong, I would say he is the pinnacle of America and American brilliance. And that is probably one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of Louis Armstrong. And you're right, because now that I think about it, uh, as you said, uh, watching either video or performances uh, by him, there, there never was a bad day. And, and it was always uh, joyful, and it was always, uh, like you said, a celebration. And people were having a good time. It's like, how could you not be infected by this guy? Uh, right. He's got that uh, infectious smile that it was always on his face. And it was like, wow, why can't I have a pure of heart, uh, good time, joyful thing like he's having? Right. And, you know, I played with the great drummer Elvin Jones for a number of years. And he told me that one day in Chicago, uh, he was at a club playing with John Coltrane and Louis Armstrong came to the show. So I guess Lewis was downtown at the concert hall. And after his performance, he came to the club. And then he went in the dress room and, and talked to Coltrane by himself. But I would imagine that, that Armstrong understood the importance of all musics. He understood the importance of what John Coltrane was doing. And it's like the point of, of Louis Armstrong is not, hey, man, you've got to play like Louis Armstrong. You've got to play old songs. or You've got to play Hello, Dolly. The point is 
to understand how important he was and incorporate some aspect of it. If it's the entertainment aspect, if it's the, the joyous music aspect, if it's the way of playing the blues, you know, I mean, that that's everything that we need. And if you want to have uh, protest or rebellious music, perhaps that wasn't really where he was coming from. But again, he allowed a lot of the protest music and a lot of what happened after him to uh, to flourish. And so it did. Uh, and uh, But at the same time, you can still fall back on him and look at him and, and see what he represents. Uh, a very inclusive person that touched the lives of everyone. Uh, it doesn't matter of uh, ethnicity or color, whatever it may be. Uh, he made an impact and made a difference. And I, I think that uh, that's something that we all need right now. In fact, uh, I would uh, go so far as to say, uh, Delphio, that it's maybe time for a jazz party. <laughs> yes, sir. Always time for that. Always time for it. And that's a, a great uh, thing to uh, jump off on for a moment, just because your latest release is called Jazz Party. But it couldn't be more appropriate than right now is, you know what, let's turn this thing into a party. Let's, let's move away from what's been uh, holding us down and let's find something that's going to bring us up. I mean, I'm in agreement 100%. And that's to me where the music is headed. For me, my music, the music that comes out on the other end of this, it won't be minor key depressing music. It's going to be something that's joyous and uplifting. More so because that's what people need. And as a jazz artist, uh, many times we're not conscious of what do the people need what you know what what how can we benefit society sometimes we're just thinking more in the realm of how can i make my own personal statement but at this point personal statement is we want to include everyone we want you to have a good time everything is going to be all right and that's what the idea of what was with jazz party if you're feeling bad come on and party till the blues is gone and i'll tell you what in listening to that recording from top to bottom you, you can't help but get drawn in and you can't sit down <laughs> i'm sorry you cannot sit down and listen to this music you got to stand up and you got to shake your thing <laughs> well, that's what it's about you know that's what is a great thing and uh again listening to charlie parker of course this is the 100th anniversary of the birth of charlie parker this year and i've been really you know, studying and checking his music out and he had that sound man it's it just so joyous all of the time it, when you hear him play, he had that, that snap, that crackle in the pop that is important in music. And that's the one of, you know, those elements are things that we're trying to, to make sure that we include and, you know, just front have an, another level of consciousness about reaching the people. Well, and you certainly have done that with Jazz Party. Uh, I, I wish we had uh, another hour to talk just because of all the <laughs> things. Maybe we can uh, revisit this on another episode. I, I would almost go so far as to advocate right now that uh, when and if there is uh, a change in Washington, a change in life, a change in the pandemic, that we all have a jazz party and your album, uh, you, you guys would become the uh, the soundtrack of life for all of us. 
Well, we'd love to do that, but I, I tell you what, I, I, I got a sense that we're going to be, we're going to have something else come up. Once this pandemic is over, we're going to be, uh, we're going to be ready for the next thing. And you know, that's one great thing about my dad is he was from the old school. He never complained. He would just look at the situation and he would always ask you, what's your move? What's the next thing? And a lot of times I would go to him and, you know, I like to complain, man, I can't believe this is that. And I can't believe that this is, and he'd say, well, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? And I think that's where we're at that time now where we're trying to work out, okay, what's the next move? So uh, it's going to be an extended jazz party. Indeed it will be. And I, I must say, uh, Delfio, that uh, this has been uh, an inspiring and, and wonderful conversation. Uh, you're a beautiful man uh, with a, a beautiful, kind, wonderful heart because you not only share music, you have a, a love for uh, the people that are around you. You try to inspire, you try to be a mentor. And hopefully we can hear more about that uh, emanating from you and all that uh, you do in life uh, in your capacity, whether it be a composer, a performer, uh, educator. Uh, we're all going to learn from this experience uh, thanks to people like you. Well, I appreciate it, and I just hope I can stick around. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Delphio Marsalis. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. Join our next episode for a conversation with Melissa Walker, the president and founder of a jazz educational program for the next generation called Jazz House Kids. To learn more about this podcast and to offer us your feedback, please visit our website, allthatsjazz.net.